After the birth of our first son, Joel, which is uh, 26 years ago now, uh, my wife and I, uh, like many parents, thought it would be a good idea uh, to get a book on nursery rhymes to read to our little baby. You know, that's what that's the parents think to do, right? As an adult, I, I had faint memories of nursery rhymes as a child. Uh, I thought I knew the words to them. I thought it would be a great tradition <clears throat> to, uh, to start with our own family. You know, a, a bedtime nursery rhyme or a lullaby, something that would uh, help to put them to sleep. It wasn't until my wife and I started looking at them. In fact, at home I have a digital copy of all the Mother Goose and Grimm nursery rhymes. Uh, but when we went shopping, we, it was only then that we really started to pay attention to the words. Um, I don't know if you ever paid attention to some of the words of uh, lullabies or rhymes. Uh, I, I'll, I'll share two with you. The first is the old woman who lived in a shoe. Uh, that's a mother goose rhyme. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. So she gave them some broth without any bread and she whipped them all soundly and sent them to bed. Okay, <clears throat> very, very encouraging there. I'm sure the children enjoyed that one. Or how about Rockabye Baby, a very familiar one. Rockabye Baby on the treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall and down will come baby, cradle and all. <sighs> right to the ground. You know, there's many like that. You know, <clears throat> when I look at these, I, I think to myself, no wonder you can't get a child to go to sleep when you're <clears throat> reading the, because they're listening going, what? You know, and it's hard to believe, though, that the purpose of a lullaby is to put a baby to sleep. It's the art of putting a baby to sleep uh, with a lullaby. lullaby uh, the art itself has more to do with a soothing melody, a calming environment uh, where a baby can relax <clears throat> and have senses of feeling that everything is fine and everything is good. It creates a comfortable environment. Things are peaceful. Things are calm. If you've ever been a parent, you probably remember that time when the child does this. And you know, you're almost there. Like it's that last little, all that air comes out of their lungs and you know that I just got another minute or so and I can probably lay them down and it'll all be fine. You know, in Psalm 127, we see that physical sleep is certainly something we all need for our overall health. Uh, I gave a whole sermon on health not too long ago and I think I even shared with you that that was one of my goals in the past year was to get more sleep. I, I've done much better at that, trying to force myself to go to bed sooner and sleep through the night. And uh, the days of you know four hours a night or less of you know, something I did for too long. But in Psalm 127, we see the futility of that and the fact that God wants us to get proper rest. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You know, all your efforts, unless God's involved, are, are pointless and they lead to nothing. And notice uh, what it says then in verse 2. It's vain for you to rise up early to sit up late, like burning the candle at both ends. Right? It, you think you're being productive, and maybe you are, but it doesn't lead to the best outcome for you. 
Because it says to eat the bread of sorrows. Or so he gives his beloved sleep. You know, again, so we see this principle that you can work yourself to the grave, as the saying goes. Up early, you know, again, it's not. On the other hand, you don't want to become a sluggard, right? We've looked at that in the past. But the principle is that physical sleep is certainly something we all need. It's important to us. Spiritual sleep, however, is another matter altogether. Scripture has ample warning to us about falling asleep spiritually and the consequences. Probably the most memorable is in Matthew 25 as we go to the parable of the ten virgins. That's probably one that, that comes to our mind. Let's go there quickly. We won't go through the whole parable. It's a familiar parable. <clears throat> just like to note the beginning. Because it is an admonition for all of us about falling asleep. Matthew 25, I'll begin in verse 1. And then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. And it goes on then to define what it means by wise and foolish. The wise took oil in their, in their vessels, right? Well, verse 3, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Verse 4, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And we've all heard many, many sermons. I've given them myself on the parallels of the Holy Spirit being that oil and we should be you know, having God's word in our lives. It should be part of us and we should be prepared and all that goes with that. Verse 5, though, it says, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slept. They all slumbered, all of them. You know, for years we thought, you know, the wise and foolish was, the, the wise ones were awake and alert and ready to go. No, they were all asleep. What which, which saved them, in essence, if I can use that term, uh, was that they'd prepared. So when they were awakened from sleep, uh, they were still prepared. Do you think as that individual members of the church of the living God are asleep, have become complacent. I got three questions for you. That's one of them. Second is, do you think you could be complacent having fallen asleep spiritually? And thirdly, would you describe the condition of the church as a whole as complacent, fallen asleep, I want to explore this topic today in a slightly different manner than I might normally do. The answer to these questions will enable us to take an inventory of ourselves and our present spiritual condition to help us to determine whether or not we have fallen asleep to a satanic lullaby. And that's the title of the sermon, a satanic lullaby. And I'll explain where I got that title here in a moment. <clears throat> This title came from a story that was shared in a three-part documentary I watched uh, several weeks ago, uh, referred to me by Mr. Dan Baker. We were discussing some things, and he said, commented on this thing, and so I looked at it. I was in the midst of preparing a sermon on Jacob's trouble and a place of safety, and this kind of got me, I'll say, sidetracked in a good way, I think, because it, uh, it quite captivated me. Uh, the documentary is titled Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. It's an hour and 50 minutes, almost two hours long. Uh, all, there's three, it's broken into three parts, but you can find it on YouTube, and it's all three parts run together in an hour and 50 minutes. 
It tells the story of the growth of what I would describe as, for lack of a better term, a mainstream evangelical Christian movement. It's probably about the best way I could summarize it. But in, of all places, the nation of Iran. So that, that alone intrigued me, uh, that this would be taking place in the nation of Iran, and hence the authors of this documentary decided to call it Sheep Among Wolves, right? Because this is where the, this movement is growing, is in, of all places, a predominantly Muslim nation. The current religious demographics of Iran are disputed, uh, but according to the 2011 Iranian National Population and Housing Census, so we'll have to say that this is accurate because this is what they've published and we have no reason to, I have no evidence to dispute it, but they would claim that 99.98% of Iranians believe in Islam. Now, the documentary would refute that. They, they have reason to suggest it's not accurate. But that would, that's what they put out. 99.98% of Iranians believe in Islam. Now, I would argue the reason they would publish that is because if you say you don't believe in that, they will kill you. I mean, so if they were doing a door-to-door -door survey, you're probably going to say, uh-huh, <laughs> right? The producers of the movie, uh, again, if, if you decide to watch it, I'm not telling you to watch it or not to watch it. Uh, you'll find that they have a very different theology than us in a lot of areas. So I'm not promoting it from a theological standpoint. Uh, things that we know to be true, um, they have different views in several areas. Things that we would know uh, would not be supported in Scripture. So I'm not suggesting in any way that everything about this uh, documentary is biblically accurate. You know, for example, one of the things that they'll talk about in this documentary is they believe in, quote, obedience-based discipleship, that they define as, you know, you must obey every word of Scripture. And yet, clearly we know some of the things they're doing are not obeying every word of Scripture. But again, that's what, what it points out from my takeaways, it shows clearly that God has to open up a mind to understand. There, there are a couple key things, though, that I think they do know. And, and based on those two things, they're moved in a way that I found quite compelling. And I'll get to those in a moment. But, you know, if we were lining up all of our theologies and all of our doctrines and all of those things, we would probably have a lot more different than in common from that standpoint. But I, I hate to admit this, I, I think they trump us in one way or another, which I'll talk about here in a moment. Um, but again, I say that because it just, again, shows that even very sincere people, if God's not opening up their mind to understand, they can only understand so much. But we have to give credit where credit's due because there are some things they understand that has, that has you know, really moved them. Some interesting things that gave me pause to reflect as I was watching this um, is that this new mainstream Christian movement, for lack of a better term, uh, is the fastest growing church in the world today growing at 5.2% a year, according to their numbers. 5.2% annual growth of a Christian movement in Iran. Most of those people are coming out of a Muslim background. They have no denominational leanings. They have no buildings. They, I mean, they cannot be public for fear of death in that regard. Um, they're very pro-Israel. They recognize Jesus as Messiah and that there's a coming kingdom of God. Those two things they get. Now, I, I couldn't remember if they actually picture the kingdom of God being in heaven or on earth, 
but they speak often of Jesus as Messiah and a coming kingdom of God, and on those two things alone <clears throat> establishes the bulk of what motivates them. And those are truths that we know. Those are truths that we know. Join me in 1 Peter 3. We looked at 1 Peter 3 uh, a sermon or two ago. Uh, the growth that they're experiencing is all word of mouth. Uh, you know, they can't have any public lectures, uh, anything like that. It's what, you know, we would, it's person to person. It's what we would call, you know, maybe personal evangelism. 1 Peter 3 uh, speaks to this. And uh, again, we touched on this not too long ago. So I'll just touch on it briefly. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense or to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that's what they do. As they are talking to people and an opportunity presents itself and somebody might ask them, they tell people one-on-one, person-to-person, what they believe and why. And that's how this organization has grown. Again, we would maybe call it personal evangelism. But it's not the growth of this movement that moved me, that impressed me. What impressed me was the fact that this fastest growing church, if we can use that term, uh, is growing in the midst of a Muslim world. I I just, I I couldn't, you know, I was trying to wrap my head around this. Like, how is this possible? Uh, But it is. Uh, And and again, they, they talk more about that. I don't want to get into all those details. But notice what follows after 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. Let's continue reading in verse 16 and in verse 17. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. How many of us are really prepared to suffer? That was one of the big takeaways I had from watching this. The word that's used here for suffer is also the word used in the very next verse to describe what Jesus went through. Christ also suffered, it says in verse 18. And we know how Christ suffered. So are we ready to suffer as Christ suffered? Because it's the same word used in verse 17 and verse 18. I believe we are very weak in our understanding of what it means to suffer and to martyrdom. We're so not ready. We are so not ready. We're not ready for suffering of any kind. We, we, if I can be honest, we had a hard time getting through this past year over masks. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, can we, can we, I don't want to say I get an amen and I'll get in trouble. Can we not agree to that? Like, that was hard enough, wasn't it? It was hard enough. We're so not ready for suffering. True suffering. Because the suffering that's spoken of in Scripture is not about masks or law. It's about your faith. It's suffering over your faith and what you believe. Are you a Christian? Yes or no? Gun to your head. Kind of suffering. We're so not ready. That's what I think moved me in watching these people. The whole thing's done with, you know, modified voices and blacked out faces because if they get identified, they're done. I mean, they're literally going to be murdered. 
again, if we think this past year with masks and COVIDs and lockdowns and social distancing or anti-social distancing, whatever we want to call it, is tough, <laughs> we haven't seen anything yet. We really haven't. Wait until real suffering comes. You know, maybe that's what we were supposed to learn this past year. We're not ready. Maybe that was kind of that. Remember the first message I gave to you on the webcast from my home was titled, A Shot Across the Bow, right? And I, and I, I keep coming back to that. I think all of this is like a wake-up. Like, this is just a you know, shot across the bow. Like, pay attention. You're so not ready. Maybe God's trying to wake us up and get us ready. We've fallen asleep. And the end is near, and you're running out of time. <clears throat> that was Mark chapter 8. Jesus records the true cost of discipleship. Uh, if you got a, a harmony of the Gospels, you, you can find it also in Matthew 16 and Luke 9, but we're going to read from Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 34. And when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You know, what decisions have people made in the past year to preserve their physical life at the expense of obedience to God? I don't want to get specifics. I don't want to put anybody on the spot. I'll give one example. Because somebody asked me this question about going to the feast. Are you afraid about going to the feast and getting COVID and dying? I'm like, no, I'd rather go to the feast. If I go to the feast and get COVID and die, that's God's will. Like, I, but I could go to the feast and I, I could get hit by a car going there. Like, that's never stopped me before. But if a decision to not obey God to preserve my physical life, that's what he's talking about here. What decisions are we making to preserve this life at the expense of eternal life? And it's something we should always be asking ourselves in, in every aspect of our life. What decisions am I making for the, to preserve this physical body at the expense of eternal life? There'll be other things come our way that we're going to have to sort out in relation to that. It'll be up to every individual to make that decision for yourself because you answer to God. You don't answer to me. I don't answer to God for you. We, we all have to answer for the choices and the decisions we make. I go off on a tangent here, but that particular one, as I remember telling somebody, I said, well, you know, if, if anybody had the authority not to go keep the feast someplace, Jesus did. Remember, he told his disciples, you go to Jerusalem. We're in Galilee. My time is not yet. You, he still went. You know, he had, he had the authority to say, I tell you what, we're just going to keep it right here. Because if I go to Jerusalem, they seek to kill me. But he didn't do that. And when the time came, he went and not only did he go up there, but he stood in the middle of the temple. So I keep going back. If there's somebody who had the authority to change the time or the place, he did, but he didn't. So why would I think I could? So I'm going to go in faith, right? Uh, trusting in God. I'll do my part to, to keep myself as safe as I possibly can. But in the end, you know, driving to the feast is probably more dangerous than once you're there anyway. So... But again, these are the kind of things, the kind of questions we should be asking ourselves as we're making decisions to go to church or not go to church, to do this or not do this. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, 
Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He's speaking about eternal life is what we're hanging on to. For what will it profit a man, verse 36, 36, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What would you give to preserve this life in exchange for eternal life? You know, it could be, well, I, you know, I don't want to go to the feast. I could lose my job. I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to get into, I'm not turning it into a sermon on specifics. I want us to think. Big picture. What decisions am I making in my life? It's all about preserving this life and my uh, that at, at the expense of obedience to God. So again, verse 37. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 38. For whatever, for whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, how many of us, a couple more questions, would deny being followers of Jesus Christ to save our lives? Again, are you a Christian? Guns to your head. Need an answer, yes or no? I don't think most of us would. I don't think, I tend to believe most of us wouldn't fail on that one. Uh, I give us that much credit. But how much, another question, how much of us would compromise with obedience to God to save our lives? Again, not going to the feast, working on the Sabbath, or how about the mark of the beast? You know, if you read into that, it's not an accident that gets slipped in on you. Right? Clearly, it's a choice that is made. Just go back and look at Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. It says some choose it. It says those that didn't accept it. So clearly, a choice is being made. It's not like, whoops, I didn't know that was the mark of the beast. No, it, it's something you're going to know, and you're going to choose. <clears throat> Again, Mark 8, verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed. How many of us, another question, would be ashamed to speak biblical truths or be embarrassed? People come and ask you direct questions about all the social issues going on in our society. Are you ready to give an answer, ready to give a defense, as 1 Peter 3 says? Uh, speaking the truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 reminds us, are we prepared to do that? Or will we just skirt the question? I submit there may come a day when we can't just dodge the questions. You know, our Christianity as a whole is coming under attack. shouldn't be a surprise to all of us. <clears throat> the documentary told the story of a husband and wife each morning uh, when they would part ways for the day, they would acknowledge to each other that they, it may be the last time they see one another. Because they recognized if they get found out, uh, it was certain death. I've never had to say goodbye to my wife every morning with the thought that I wouldn't see her that evening. They do. So when they say goodbye in the morning, it's maybe goodbye forever. And I, I, I just, I was kind of moved by that. The woman stated, quote, I know that if I am caught, I would most likely be repeatedly raped, beaten, and further tortured until I died. And the husband would also be tortured and killed. You see, the government would have to make an example of them so nobody else would get the idea of becoming Christians. And so it would be a very public uh, visual thing to send a message to others 
And so each and every morning it was goodbye. I, I may or may not be back. They didn't know. But here's what really stuck with me. She said this, quote, this is the choice we have made in order to follow Christ and we accept it. And I thought, wow. You know, we've had it so easy here for so long. <laughs> we don't know what persecution is. We don't. I hope we can all at least admit that. We have no idea. You can read about it in books, right? But we have no idea because we haven't lived it. Right? We haven't experienced it in that way. One of the most compelling statements in this documentary involved the story of another husband and wife. Uh, they were able to get out of Iran and move to the United States, which I think we all think would be a wonderful thing. Yay, they got out. They're here in the States now. They have more freedoms, freedom of religion, and all that that they can enjoy in this country. After they lived in America for a short period of time, they didn't really specify how long, uh, the wife began to plead with her husband to move back to Iran, which I found just well, crazy. Like, I couldn't wrap my head around it. After all, you know, even her husband said, who, who would want to go back there? You know, we got out from under that, uh, that oppression uh, where the mere sharing of anything you believe, your faith, would mean certain death. Why would we want to go back? She told him, quote, and this is the point of the sermon title, there is a satanic lullaby here in the United States. All the Christians are sleepy, and I'm falling asleep. This woman determined that spiritual sleepiness was more dangerous to her than to remain under persecution. Now, obviously, we could, you could jump to the conclusion, which I'm sure we all did. It's sad that we need external pressure to motivate us, right? It's, it, but that's the human condition, right? How many of us would get our work done if the boss wasn't expecting it by 5 o'clock Friday? Eh, next week, right? It's our nature to procrastinate, put things off. But she was so afraid of spiritually falling asleep that she'd rather go there where she would remain focused and alert. I had to ask myself, would I do that? You know what my answer was? Uh-uh, I don't want to. Just be honest, right? I, I would not want to do that. But it was so important to her that that's what she pleaded with her husband to do. She would rather risk, as, she, as the other woman had talked about, rape, torture, and death at the hands of the Iranians than to potentially miss out on this kingdom of God she heard about. That's how much it meant to her. And to that, we have to give credit where credit's due, right? She, it, it was that important to her that she felt she needed to do that she was afraid she was becoming spiritually lethargic and falling asleep. And it scared her. She recognized that lethargy, that indifference, that complacency, lukewarm, let's use a term that we're familiar with, Laodicea, was more dangerous to her than her physical death. So she'd rather go back. You know, as I said a moment ago, our nation's moving beyond just being secular, that is having no, no religion or no connection. Uh, we're not even atheists where we just don't believe in God. We've become anti-Christian. There's a movement against Christianity. Christianity is being blamed for all the world's problems. And as a result, there's a growing movement against it. Um, 
This anti-Christian movement believes Christianity is, uh, isn't just a naive or silly belief, but it's the cause of most problems in society. It's, it's because it is uh, intolerant is why they consider it evil, we, and they define intolerance as we don't support what they believe. So that makes us intolerant. And yet, Christians, I think, are overwhelmingly tolerant people. We tolerate a lot of things that we know are, are, are wrong in our society. And this belief now has got the idea that Christianity can no longer just be silence. It needs to be purged. It needs to go. Because of the direction our society is moving, we're a roadblock to that. And so are we ready to be persecuted for what we believe? You know, all of this is a product of, you can do a search for cultural Marxism. Uh, it's, it's the Marxist ideology placed upon our culture. Vody Bakum has a really nice piece on YouTube about cultural Marxism. You can look that up. But it, it basically is a, a Marxist attack on any Judeo-Christian values in our nation. They want that stomped out and uh, eradicated. I remember when Melvin Rhodes moved to the United States uh, from Africa, he came to our congregation is where he pastored when he came. And he said, you know, most Americans don't realize it, but you've been living in Disneyland. Compared to the rest of the world, this is Disneyland. It's a make-believe la-la land where everything is wonderful, but the rest of the world is not that way. I never forgot that. Um, we've been in this dream world. We, we've been comforted and lulled to sleep by a satanic lullaby that has us believe everything is just fine. It's all good. And these elections that come and go are, are mildly interrupting, but it's all good. It's all fine. No, don't, don't get worked up. And so we stay asleep. We don't have the passion and zeal that maybe we would if we were fully awake and alert. Um, we know scripture tells us if we stay in this lullaby, sudden destruction comes, right? Just like that. So I'll ask again, have we become complacent? Have we fallen asleep to this satanic lullaby as the woman used in, in the documentary, which I think was a really good metaphor uh, for what we've experienced here? You know, I often marvel, as I did in watching this documentary, at people that have passion with no truth and we have truth and lack passion. Now, they had bits of truth. I don't say they had none. Like they, they understood Jesus as Messiah, and there's a coming kingdom. That, that part they knew, that was enough to give them the passion to, to, to risk death. And so I, I tell you what pricked my conscience in watching that is, where's our passion? Where's our passion for what God has? He's granted us so much more truth than they have. I throw all of I mean, myself in that too, you know, where, whether it comes down to just every aspect of all that we do and, and, you know, just from our singing of hymns and our time together and the, the passion of just, just to be together and, and focus on that which uplifts and encourages. I'm going to go back a few chapters in the book of Mark to Mark 14. There's, a, again, a parallel cart, uh, account in Matthew 26, but we're here in Mark, so we'll go to Mark 14. This is after Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He has Passover with his disciples and the new covenant symbols are instituted. Uh, verse 26, they go out 
uh, and they sing a hymn on the Mount of Olives, um, and that's usually where we uh, end our Passover service. Notice then what uh, is recorded after that, verse 27 of Mark 14, and Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even, I, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows, twice, you will deny me three times. Verse 31, but he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all likewise said the same thing. You know, he was that, Peter was that sure of himself, that he had that much spiritual strength that even if everybody else denied you, I wouldn't do it. I would die before I would deny you. And as it says, they all likewise said the same thing. But yet Jesus warned Peter, he said, Peter, appreciate your zeal, but truth is, you're going to deny me. You know, I, I take this every time I read it as, a, as an admonition to myself that, you know, we should all be careful that we think it won't happen to me. Right? Maybe, maybe everybody else is asleep. I'm not asleep. Or maybe this or maybe that. You know, we should all be careful that, you know, we don't draw that conclusion. The word that's used here uh, means to sleep a sleep of death. We continue on as we dropping down here to verse. Uh, let's see. Yeah, let's let's continue on. So he goes to praying in the garden, and he says they came to a place where he named Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, "Sit here while I pray." And he took Peter, James, and John with him. Now, I think we've looked at this before. I believe the reason he took those three was because of what Peter just said and the fact that James and John wanted to be on his right hand and his left. So he's like, I'm going to take you, you, and you. Come with me, right? I think he felt like they needed to, uh, to be singled out for this little excursion they were going to go on. He took them. He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. He said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. In verse 37, he came and found them sleeping. And that's that word that literally means sleep of death. They are just asleep. He said, Peter, Simon, why are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We can all think mentally and spiritually and intellectually that we're ready for these things, but he says the flesh is what's weak. Again, he went away, verse 39, and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And I like this last part of verse 40. And they didn't even know how to answer him. At this point, like they were just caught red-handed. And this time, they, they just didn't, they didn't even answer this time. Because he already warned them once. He came again. So verse 41, he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. So again, you know, we, we see this sleep of death, as the word is translated, again, to be spiritually asleep. You know, to be secure and unconcerned of the state of our lives and not being alert and awake and ready for Christ's return. 
You know, as we look through these verses, verse 33 and 37 through 37, you know, instead of praying, all three of them were sleeping. And the second time when he came, they didn't know how to answer. And so the question is, if, if they, who had spent so much time in the physical presence of our Savior, could fall asleep, why would we think we couldn't fall asleep? I mean, think of all they witnessed in his presence. And yet, they didn't feel moved enough to do what he asked them to do. Just stay awake. You've gone an hour. Go back. And you're asleep. So I think if it can happen to them, it certainly can happen to us. In 2 Corinthians, you know, when I consider somebody that suffered a lot, I think of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, um, Paul lists here uh, an account of his life describing many of the things that he suffered after his conversion. Second Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Beginning verse 23, just breaking into the context, he's speaking of suffering. Are the ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. And he begins to then list out much of what he endured. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Okay, if we stop there, I haven't had any of those in my life. So you can stop right there, Paul. You got me. But then he goes on. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst and fastings, often in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. You know, here we see as Paul lists out all that he endured, you know, the thing about Paul is after every single one of those, he got up and he went right back out there. He got up and just and just over and over and over again. And I dare say I haven't had to experience one of those. Are we ready for persecution? No. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're so not ready. Um, With this background about Paul, let's go to Timothy now, because it's with that. He writes to Timothy, and I know I've commented and we're well aware of the relationship between Paul and Timothy. He loved young Timothy, mentored him, had a certain you know, affection towards him as, as the, this young mentor, and, and he would always write to him in very uh, you know, intimate, special ways. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, this background of all that Paul suffered, this is what he writes to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, we'll pick it up. In verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. If we find ourselves fearful, we have to ask why. Because that's not the spirit he's given us. Oh, there's times we're going to have fear in our life. Don't get me wrong. But we shouldn't stay there. Right? 
I think you know, we need to take that sound mind with the power of the Holy Spirit to process why I'm in fear, to move beyond that. He's not given us a spirit of fear, power, love, and a sound mind. Therefore, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. He says, look, don't, don't be ashamed. In, in fact, share in these sufferings for the gospel and the furtherance of it. And I, I keep going back to would we do that or would we run? <laughs> you know, it's something we should be thinking about. I've not had to endure what these people are enduring. I don't want to endure what they're enduring. I don't want to have to go through it. But if I had to, could I? Right? That's something we should be asking ourselves. He goes on then in chapter 2 to describe our service uh, as being that of a soldier. Uh, we know that soldiers, they take an oath to endure any and all hardships. You know, they don't get to say, you know, I don't want to go sleep in that foxhole. <laughs> It's not an option, you know. You do what you're told to do. Second Timothy chapter two: You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, they also may attain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, verse 11, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He goes on then in verse 14, and lists some practical instructions to them on how to live and conduct our lives. Remind them of these things charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their measure will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, verse 19, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. He goes on then. Notice what he says beginning in verse 20. But in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, you know, and what he's saying is, you know, in this house, in this building, in this congregation, in the church, there will be some vessels for honor and some for dishonor, right? You've got parallel, you know, parables of wheat and tear and different things, right? Notice what he says here. 
Therefore, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, that is, wooden clay being a, a vessel for dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. He goes on and speaks of, you know, fleeing youthful lust and avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. They only generate strife. Verse 24, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Wake up out of that satanic lullaby, having been taken captive by him to do his will. That's what Paul admonishes Timothy that, you know, and we need to heed these words ourselves, to, to come to their senses, wake up. You've been in a lullaby for too long. You know, if we were upset with how things have gone in the last six months of the year with, you know, the COVID things and lockdowns and elections and all that's been turmoil in our nation, that's just the start of things. Right? If we're upset over that, you know, we're, we need to you know, wake up. It's only going to get much worse. We need to have that fire in the belly we once had that ignites that passion for you know, why we're here, why God called us, what our purpose is. I mentioned the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, I, I won't go there. You may want to read through that again. Again, they were all asleep when the story began. That's the big takeaway. Notice Luke 17. Because I said, if we don't wake up, then sudden destruction comes. We'll be caught completely unaware. Um, we want to be careful that we don't get the attitude that everything's just fine. Uh, Luke chapter 17. <clears throat> Verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. We've looked at this in the past, right? It doesn't say they were sinning. It says they were living their lives. They were eating and drinking and marrying and having families. Uh, it just They were just going about life. Verse 28, likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, even so will it be in the day, in the day even when the Son of Man is revealed. And that day he was on the housetop, and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who was in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, it says in verse 32. Again, we don't want to be people that think, oh, it's, everything's fine. We've got plenty of time. Just keep, you know, we have to keep living our lives. It doesn't say stop living your lives, but don't be caught unaware while you're living your lives and planning your lives and planning your future. So again, ask yourself, have I been complacent? Have I been asleep in some kind of satanic lullaby, thinking things are maybe not as bad off as they might be? Have I allowed myself to drift into some false sense of security. I think to some extent we all have, because we, we don't understand persecution like other people do. You know, Laodicea, we won't go there, in Revelation 3 is described as rich and increased to goods in need of nothing, right? It's all good. Fine. Right? 
doing just fine. You know, another interesting statement in this documentary uh, was their view of converts versus disciples. And I have meditated on this since watching this. To them, a convert is someone who merely converts from a set of beliefs to another set of beliefs. Uh, And you can do that academically. You can just sit down and academically prove something. If I'm going to stop doing that, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stop attending there. I'm going to attend that. You you could do that academically. You can convert from one place to the other. A disciple... uh, is someone who truly wants to become like their master, even to the point of death. It's different than just converting. Uh, we looked at this word in the past, discipleship, in Holman's Bible Dictionary. It comes from an English word, or from a Latin root, meaning learner or pupil. I'll give you a short answer from Holman's. It says, it was the task of the disciple to learn, study, and pass along the sayings and teachings of the master. The task of a disciple is to learn, to study, and be able to pass along the sayings and teachings of the master. We should all be striving to do that. Can you explain to somebody your beliefs? You know, without a booklet, right? Just your Bible, you know, maybe you got notes in your Bible. But could you do that? Why do you keep the Sabbath on Saturday? Because I keep the Sabbath on Sunday, right? So how, how would you start that discussion? Why do you keep the holiest? Why, why do you do what you do? Can we pass along the sayings and teachings of our master? That's what a true disciple can do. Here's a statement in the documentary that stuck with me, and that's why it's important that we understand we don't want to just be a convert that converted from something else to this, but we want to be true disciples. They said, quote, Converts run away from persecution. Disciples would die for their Lord in persecution. Because they have that kind of relationship with their master and their mentor that they would die rather than run away. A convert, they might just run away because it was all academic. It was just all head knowledge. A disciple, they're trying to be like their mentor. And so they will go to the death in defense of that. We want to be disciples, not converts. And so this is the way these people live every day. Um, When I consider how they live compared to how we live in our lives, for us, persecution is mostly theory. We we thought mask was persecution. (laughs) I did not like it, don't get me wrong, but we do not know what persecution is. We don't. Which means we need to be aware of that and be prepared for that. Because when the time comes, are we going to be able to stand up under persecution? You know, those people truly are ready to die for their beliefs. The woman in the documentary was able to actually convince her husband to move back to Iran. I I couldn't believe it, but they did. They packed up and moved back. It was that important to her. And her husband said, well, if if it's that important, then we'll do it. And they moved back. And again, it's, it's sad that, you know, you would need an external pressure, but I think that's just human nature. Right? I think we would all agree with that. As I said, you could look at something in your own life, if you know, pick something innocuous like a deadline at work, and if you didn't have a deadline, would you really get around to it? Right? It's just human nature tends to procrastinate things. Um, but she would rather risk all of that, rape, torture, and death, 
rather than becoming asleep, falling asleep spiritually. And that's just based on a bit of knowledge that she does know. We know so much more. So much more that God has given to us to know. Would we have the courage to do the same? To risk death? To stay wide awake? You know, every professing, professing Christian knows John 3.16. Let's go there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever shall believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's John 3.16. Let's read beyond that. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may, ha- may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. You know, we live in a time when men love darkness rather than light. They, they don't like what we stand for, overwhelmingly. We, we put boundaries on what they want to do. We, 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 we put limits on how they want to live. And they don't like that. They'd rather be and stay in darkness. But that shouldn't give us cause to stop preaching what we know to be true. Again, at the end of the uh, address of the church at Laodicea, they were admonished to be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. You know, we need to get a zeal like we haven't had in years. You know, if we think, as became pretty evident in the past year and certainly up to the election and afterwards, people really went off the rails, upset. Uh, in and out of the church uh, for any number of reasons. Um, But if we think this last year has been hard, we have no clue what hard really is. That was my takeaway, and I had realized watching what these people are going through. I think the woman was right. We've been in a satanic lullaby. We've been asleep. Everything's okay. We, we, we think we're doing, you know, we're doing a little bit better in the world, and we think that's good enough. But, you know, if we're doing a little bit better in the world, and the world just keeps going down, over time, you know, we started out here, and we're here. We, we need to stay wide awake and alert. <clears throat> Romans 13, we'll get a few scriptures, I'll be done here. As I said, sometime during the past year, in one of the sermons, you know, we look at we can kind of make light of it in one sense to illustrate a point. You know, we'll stand someday with people that were resurrected after suffering horrible martyrdom, and we're going to try to explain that masks were tough, and they're going to say, I, I, was, sewing, I was sewing in half. Yeah, but, but yeah, but we had to put masks on for a whole year. I mean, we, I'll laugh just to keep it light, but we, we don't know what persecution is, right? That's, that's the reality of it. So we have to be ready because, you know, the institutions of our government have allowed for the censoring of free speech. We've seen that happen now in the last few months. Uh, they shut down businesses that they don't like or they think are non-essential. Um, they, they de-platform companies right off the Internet. They just erase them. Right? And they've got to scramble to find a way to get, get back on. You know, how long before we're told we can no longer speak about fill in the blank? 
what are we going to do? Right? These are questions we should be thinking about. Romans chapter 13, verse 11, And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. It is time to wake up. We have been asleep for far too long. You know, in verse 12 it says, to cast off the works of darkness, that satanic lullaby. Wake up, right? And don't be lulled to sleep. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Go back again to the second epistle Paul wrote to Timothy. We'll go to 2 Timothy 3. Beginning of verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, that in the last day perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, verse 4, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We totally see that going on in our world today. Verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. Drop on down to verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will suffer persecution. Why would we be trying to avoid persecution when it says we'll suffer persecution? Again, I'm not lining up. You know, if they're if, if they're lining people up, I'll let you all go first because you know I just you know I'll hold the door. None of us want to line up for it, but are we ready for it if it comes? Because it says in verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'll have to admit, in light of what I saw in those people from Iran, um, I do think individual members of the church are asleep. I can say that. I, I mean, the second question I had is, have I become complacent? Well, yeah, I think we all have, certainly to some degree or another. I can certainly admit that, especially when I compare myself to what they're enduring. Again, they know Jesus is Messiah. They love the Jewish people. They love the nation of Israel because right, they understand the heritage and the history between their nations. They know there's a coming kingdom, and based on that alone, they're ready to die. I compare myself to that. Yeah, I think we've fallen asleep. The church as a whole, condition of the church as a whole, I think it was the third question I had. Have we become complacent? Sure. Maybe I should say maybe, but I think we have. I think we've had it pretty good quite a while and my concern is when persecution comes what's going to happen are we going to turn and devour and bite I don't I don't know because when it comes are, are we ready for it are we ready for it I think now more than ever we should seriously consider the importance of our time together each and every Sabbath I know I've harped on it a million times I'm going to harp on it again you know, we need to value the time while we still can come together. Hebrews 10, 24 is the why that we would stir up love and good works, 
in verse 25, is not forsaking the assembly together as is the manner of some. Even more so, as it says, as you see the day approaching. 